0: When MTV did its top one hundred video countdown, I wrote all of the the artists or and the musicians and the and the names of the songs down and I passed that around. And, you know, it was so obvious. It's like you should be a social commentator. You're not a doctor, you're not a pre-med, you're not an engineer. That's insane. You are meant to comment on social social culture. That's your thing. You're a pop culture guy. And being Indian though, this is where the Indian part plays in. And Raman can relate to this and Sharon, you probably too, which is that's not an option. That's not a thing. You can't go be a journalist or a or a, a rock critic or whatever else you're thinking about. I'm Rajiv Sethial, and I'm a model minority.
1: Welcome to Model Minorities. This is a show about work and life, told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City.
2: And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee.
1: Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world.
2: Basically what we're all thinking about, but probably not talking enough about.
1: Whether you're black, white, brown, yellow, gay, straight, boy, girl, or anything in between.
2: This is a show about all of you, for all of us. On today's show, we're talking to comedian, host, and speaker, Rajiv Satyal. Rajiv is a nationally known comic featured on NPR, CNN, Wall Street Journal, New York Times. He's performed with famous comedians like Dave Chappelle, Russell Peters, Kevin Nealon, and a host of other people you've heard of. And he's even worked with like Procter & Gamble, the NFL, and Google, helping them figure out how to be funny. Um, What's great about it is he actually got his start at P&G and So Sharon, what'd you think?
1: This was the first time I've ever spoken to a comedian and I kind of expected to be laughing the entire time and just for him to, to not be serious, I guess. And I was actually very, (laughs) I know that sounds terrible. No, that's funny in itself. (laughs) But I was very impressed by how thoughtful he was. I mean, we really had a really nice conversation with him and we got to the heart of a, a lot of his passions and a lot of his experiences very quickly.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I've known him for a lot of years, and while he is funny on stage, he has the capability to destroy and connect with an audience. I think the funniest thing about him is his earnestness, and I think it's—I mean, kind of like me—he grew up in a place where you wouldn't think Indian people are, but he grew up in Ohio. Yeah, um, and you like, know, he—I was like, oh, a-
1: there are actually Indian people there. <laughs> yeah,
2: they're, they're, it's kind of like Chinese people; we're everywhere. Um, but I mean, yeah, I mean, he literally was like emceeing Diwali events, and I don't think he realized he was doing stand-up at an early age yeah that's kind of how he got his start before he actually hit the clubs
1: yeah which is so ironic right because like he actually up until probably up until that moment or not that moment but his career trajectory started off being kind of stereotypical as well you know big consumer packaged goods company and then all oh, of a the sudden, model minority thing yeah yep. he to- totally was total model minority and then all of a sudden Decided to pursue his passion full time, so that was kind of that was great too to hear about his love for stand up and his love for performing and how he started to get into that and and how that became his career as it is today.
2: I got to tell you a funny story. Um, I don't know, I don't remember if we talked about this in the episode, but like, here is how we met. Um, So we were we both got our career start at Procter and Gamble, big advertising and marketing company, and there was this cute girl that i worked with and you know we'd flirt and just friendly but
1: you I and think the cute girl not you and rajiv right
2: <laughs> well yeah that's that's part two of the story no but like um this girl and we just hung out you know whatever i had no game i have no game continue to have no game but like one day she was like hey let's go out to lunch with one of my childhood friends i think you'll really get along and it was this guy, Rajiv, who she grew up with, another Indian person from Ohio. And um, we hit it off, man. Like, we were just like uh, peas <laughs> in a pod. And all of a sudden, I'm not, not bugging this girl at work anymore. I'm goofing yep. off with Rajiv in and out of the office. And the rest is history. It
1: worked. She, she found you a new buddy so that you would leave her alone. I love that.
2: Classic girl strategy yeah, for Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> Day in the life of Roman. Well, one thing that Rajiv talked about, which I found to be kind of funny, I mean, lots of things that he said was funny, but kind of tongue in cheek and ironic, was he talked to us about how he was able to work with Hillary Clinton's Secretary, the State Department, when Obama was president and got to travel to India as part of a cultural exchange program.
2: Yeah, it was him and um, these other two comedians, uh, Azar Usman and Hari Kondabalu. And they toured a bunch of cities in India just doing their act. And the state department was paying for it.
1: Yeah. As like part of, you know, the U.S. outreach and fostering, fostering understanding and fostering uh, a a stronger community. And and I was kind of like, Rajiv, you and two other Indian guys went to India to represent the U.S.? (laughs) It was like, uh, yeah, basically
2: (laughs) (laughs) what's great about that is how it ended up like fast forward years after, and we talked about this, but like how it made like really big political news, but in an unexpected way, like the Republican party like got into it. And you know, it's, uh, it's really interesting. You got to hear the story.
1: Yeah, it's great. So let's just dive into the show and take a listen. Rajiv, I hear you're famous. Are you really famous? And if you are, what do you do? Wow. If you have to
0: ask me if I'm famous, I'm going to say no.
2: <laughs> I think Sharon just totally Indian momed you.
1: I did, didn't I?
2: Yes. No pressure. Very
1: easy
0: adjacency, you know, <laughs> South to East Asian. This is easy.
2: Wait. Exactly. You're Indian? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Today.
2: Wait, where are you from? Yeah. Rajiv, where, where are you from?
0: Oh, I'm I'm from Cincinnati, Ohio.
2: No, no, come on. As I'm sure you've heard.
1: Where are you really from?
0: I am really from my mother. I am really <laughs> from Cincinnati, Ohio, but my parents are from India.
2: How often do people ask you that?
0: People asked me that a lot. I think in Los Angeles, where I've been living for almost 15 years now, asking people where they're from is almost like when you're in Vegas and asking people where are you in from? My wife Hersha and I were in Vegas and somebody asked us that and she wasn't offended, but she goes, why did they ask us where we're in from? I go, Oh, that is just the conversation starter in Las Vegas because almost everybody is in from somewhere. Even the locals don't go to the strip. So I get asked that a lot in LA since it's such a transient city.
1: And where were you born and raised?
0: I was born in Hamilton, which is about thirty-five minutes north of Cincinnati. I was raised in Fairfield, which is about twenty-five minutes
2: north of Cincinnati, Ohio. Interesting. So How do brown people get? That's I get asked. How did brown people get to Alabama? How did brown people get to Ohio?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Good question.
2: They got there slower than white people. You know, white people being, <laughs> be, being on
0: planes and having more money at the time. I think Indians, you know, didn't take a boat, but but walked. They walked really far. So. Indians in Ohio. So my mom's brother had a scholarship to Miami University in Oxford. I believe he came over in 1968. And then he sponsored my mom, his sister, who's, of course, also my mom's sister, to come over in 1970. So my mom actually came before my dad. That Mm. is some
2: straight chain migration.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) And... Then you came along. So you grew up there and then you're out in Los Angeles now, right?
0: Yeah. So 30 years in Cincinnati. And is it? Well, maybe it's 14 years. Okay, I was saying 15, 14 years in L.A. So that gave away my age. I'm 44 years old. So I'm coming up on half my life in L.A.
1: Wow.
2: And I know what you do. What, what do you do?
0: <laughs> I know what you did last summer. I, I know what you did back in '05 when we worked at the Peach. So I am a stand-up comic. That is what I do for a living.
1: And how does an Indian male become a stand-up comic? Because that's also just as weird as uh, brown people living in Cincinnati.
0: Well, the male part of it makes it easy. (laughs) uh, it's, It's the South Asian part, the Indian part, that's a little bit harder. So, you know, when I went up on stage at Go Bananas Comedy Club, which is in Cincinnati, Ohio, I didn't really do any Indian material for the first couple of years. I just went up there with what I thought was funny. I did not play up the whole Indian angle until a number of people told me to start doing it. Indian and actually mostly white folks who were saying... You know, what you're doing is funny, but what's really interesting is that you're the only Indian doing this. You don't want to talk anything about that. Like cue to maybe 10 years later in L.A. back in 2013, I guess it was, maybe 2012. And I had about 15 mostly actors over to my apartment in Studio City. And I was going over my one-person show on dating, and it was probably maybe eight or nine Indian people and five or six white people, maybe a couple Asian, black, Latino, whatever. Just, I'm just saying that to be cool. There weren't, yeah. it was just white and Indian. <laughs> and, and other, just the other box. Other. other, The other box. And I remember this white woman who's, a, who's been a director out here for a long time. She said, you know, I love your general observations about dating. That's great. Online apps, whatever. I don't even think apps were a thing. but Online dating and all that stuff. She goes, what's really intriguing to the non-Indians in the room is the arranged marriage piece. The fact that your parents did not have an arranged marriage, but that the expectation was that they there would be. And the fact that your parents play such a r- large role in your dating life, that is a foreign concept to white people. And she goes, that is where I really leaned in and I want to learn more. If I want to learn about just general dating, I'm going to some white guy show. I want to hear you talk about your culture.
1: Right. And so you talked a little bit about your audience demographic. Do you, do you typically see that in your shows now? Like what's the breakdown and, and who tends to respond best to your materials? And who are you actually thinking of when you're writing jokes?
0: Oh, that's a great question. The the last one, you finally got to a good question. I'm kidding. Sorry. That was gosh,
1: good. my goodness. No, that really
0: good. yeah, that's, that's really, <laughs> it's interesting you say that though, Sharon, when you go uh, like, whom are you thinking of when you write the jokes? I always think about that. I think of a few different people in my life to think, would this person think it's funny? Is, is yeah. it this person's humor? You know, Ultimately, you're writing the jokes for yourself, but you do have to have a target. I mean, I grew up in marketing after all. So I would say my audiences are still pretty much like me. They tend to be South Asian American. I would say mostly Indian. But when I go to the clubs, I do just as well, if not better, because comedy is, is meant to be you know, heard in a... Comedy club, just like artists hang their pieces in museums. Like, why do they do that? Well, that's optimal lighting and people are perceptive and they're going to see art. It's the same thing with comedy. So the interesting, the only probably interesting caveat in in all of that answer was the fact that my base is probably half female male and uh being sensitive to to gender here but in terms of uh uh, of born with the sex identified as as birth you could tell i live in california and so i would say that when i've done shows and it was all male it actually was much harder than when it's all female so i think that's kind of interesting
2: i think you know i've been to shows with you um like literally where you and i are in the audience hearing your buddies like there was Mm -hmm. a time Uh, Early in our career, where we just went to clubs uh, and not the cool clubs with like bottles of vodka, but like comedy clubs (laughs) clubs. in like Southwest Ohio. (laughs) And no, there's this one comic and something he said, like a kind of a response to the crowd, like when he uh, whiffed on a joke. Uh, I think you know where I'm going with this and I want you to say it if you know it. To me, that sums up your audience target. Is that fair? <laughs> it
0: is. It is. I, I think it was Danny Miller back at Go Bananas. And he said something that didn't work. And he just goes, screw you. That was funny. <laughs> and he didn't say, screw. But I took that. And it, it's a fairly stock comedian joke. I, I heard it from Danny Miller. But it, it's something that comics say. So I didn't feel bad. I asked him. I was like, gosh, that's just so good. He goes, oh, dude, use that. He's like, "That's that's an old thing. And so... Brumman has always felt like that was my brand, though. It was Screw You, That's Funny.
1: Right. That's funny. That's funny. <laughs> that's
0: funny. Without the Screw
2: You. Exactly. Oh, okay, so I want to back up. So we, we've gone pretty deep into the comedy thing really fast. But I guess before being a successful comic and entertainer and a host, before being a corporate guy, I mean, you've worn a few corporate hats, you've the private jet, all that stuff. And who was Rajiv before any of that? Like... Who's ten year old Rajiv? What did he want to do when he grew up?
0: Okay, that's a great question. And just for the record, I flew in the corporate jet four times. So,
1: that's still more. Go after yourself, Rajiv. Listen, listen. (laughs) You got it made, dude.
0: (laughs) I got it made. People were like, "How are you leaving? You've been in the corporate jet four times, and you, you, uh, you really didn't. You've earned zero of those those trips. But, but good work. So, okay. So, I would say probably around the age of six. I knew that I wanted to do something different. I wanted something different. I didn't know what that meant. What I wish I would have realized, and I was just talking to Hersha, my wife, about this this week, is I didn't realize those things that made me unique. And I'm not saying just me, but other people, I think kids struggle with, what is it exactly when I would show up on Monday morning, I would know all the football scores, right? People would be like, hey, Raj, who won? Was it the Steelers, the Bengals, whatever, the Packers? What were those scores? And I knew them all. And at, when MTV did its top 100 video countdown, I wrote all of the, the artists or, and the musicians and the, and the names of the songs down, and I passed that around. And, you know, it was so obvious. It's like, you should be a social commentator. You're not a doctor. You're not a pre-med. You're not an engineer. That's insane. You are meant to comment on social media. Social culture—that's your thing. You're a pop culture guy, and being Indian, though, this is where the Indian part plays in. And Raman can relate to this, and Sharon, you probably too. Which is, that's not an option. That's not a thing. You can't go be a journalist or a or a,
2: a rock critic or whatever else you're thinking about. Pre Sanjay Gupta, you couldn't pre Sanjay Gupta, you could exactly right. Oh, yeah. I he's, think, technically, he's a doctor though. So he is a doctor, right? His he, parents he's, probably think he's a failure. Yeah. Okay.
0: <laughs> well, as long as he renews his license, Raman, he's fine. <laughs> so, but no, uh, exactly someone right. will
2: never come on the show now.
0: Great. That, that, that's too bad. <laughs> yeah,
1: but no, just, I think that's you just exactly right. that for us.
0: You ruined, you can edit this part out. So I, I, but that's really what it was, is he became a doctor first. And so it was okay. But it's now the people who are going into it at a younger age who had, yeah. quote unquote, no backup plan that, uh, that are really
2: breaking down the barriers, I think. I think, you know, I had this late uncle um, who lived in California for a while. And mm. he would tell his son and me, he's like, do it, because he was like a biotech startup guy, you know, started with the engineering route and then just became an entrepreneur very successful and he said do whatever you want just do it really well and if Mm. you're not ready to do it well and i think that uh uncle joe was like ahead of his time his name was joe um but he was ahead of his time Mm. because i think that's where in the modern asian parent is now because they see all the success stories whether it's aziz or female version of aziz or uh, i meant to say female like whatever asian it's okay to not be a doctor or engineer now Mm -hmm. but you better be successful. You better work your tail off. I don't know. What do you guys think?
1: I think that from, I mean, my perspective has, um, my parents kind of were all about success, but in terms of financial success, like that's one way that they measure success. Mm -hmm. So working your tail off and, but like do it to make money, right? Like Mm -hmm. I remember when I had chosen to work in the nonprofit world, to make a difference for the world and other things, but to had to take a pay cut to do it. And my parents were like, not about that whatsoever. Um, not that they weren't about me making a difference. They were kind of like, well, you can volunteer and you can, you know, you can do things on the side, but your main job job, like your career should be to make money.
2: Well, no, so I guess the question is about, because Sharon, you know, you run a a small business. You have a lot of young folks working. I don't know if there are any Asians. I just don't know. Um, but I think this, this generation coming up probably two generations behind us the 20 and 25 year olds their asian parents aren't saying doctor or engineer they're just like rocket do really well you know at whatever you do go be the journalist go be the artist go be the comedian or maybe not is it just nope securities in doctor and engineering stem it
1: i almost don't even have an answer to that cuz i don't know <laughs> Know, like, like you know, I only know what I only know. So are you saying that we're going to tell our children that or are you saying well, that was, like that was so going to be my
2: follow up question? Like, can our kids be stand up comics?
1: Honestly, I don't know what people mm-hmm. 20 years younger than us are being told by their parents. Like, I'm actually trying to think of I think it's all the same. I, I think it has to do with um, number like generational differences. But in terms of the number of generations that someone has been in this country. So like first first generation parents are probably going to focus on get a great education and get a stable job, right? Second generation, meaning they've people that are born here are probably gonna say, get a stable job and pursue your dreams. Third generation, I think that's where you get into pursue your dreams and and then it's so
2: more were good. you were, what did your parents want you to be?
0: They wanted me to be a doctor. My kids are going to be doctors. I, it skips a generation. I I I, <laughs> I I agree with Sharon. I heard something a while ago that you know clearly now I don't I don't have I have no original thoughts. Oh, screw you. I'm funny as Danny Miller. This is from someone else. I have heard that when it comes to immigration, the first generation saves, the second generation spends, and the third generation wastes. Hmm. Yes.
1: Wow. Yes. I like that.
2: I do know, Sharon. We can't Not, like that. Because no, that no, no. Because I don't like
1: that because I agree. Like, I, I agree <laughs> with that. Like, I think that that you hear
2: that. You I feel hear that.
1: that. I feel that. I feel that. Yeah, I do. Yeah, feel but that. But
2: it speaks to me because I do have this fear. Never mind the pandemic that we're living through right now. But you know, we live in this Amazon Prime culture where you want something that shows up two days later, and our kids watch that happen, right? And like, if anything you know, she's used to boxes arriving with stuff that mommy and daddy get mm-hmm. or even for her. What's that for me? Is that package for me? Um, I think, Sharon, you told me once your kids are ordering stuff and I'm like, whoa. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. They put stuff but into the cart all the time.
2: All of that is like, mm. I want my kid to be smart. I want my kid to be nice, all these things. But I don't want her to grow up to be a jerk. That is so much more important to me. So this idea of third generation waste, Rajiv, is like, I actually don't want that. Like, that's the only thing I, I don't want, you know, because I think there's inherent Evil to the entitlement or the wastage, if you will.
0: You know, Ruman Segel is the one who inspired me to go to Antarctica. I had never really thought about doing it, and I did it in December. And I'm really glad I did it. Now it seemed like I kind of got it in under the uh, under the belt there, if that's the phrase. But I I went down there with my college roommate Joe Cucci, and his dad was the. Raman, this might have been a little bit before your time because his dad and I overlapped at p for maybe a few months. His dad was the VP of CBD, all of sales in North America. Yeah. He had a huge position, reported right to the president of the MDO, Rob Steele, who then re- reported right to A.G. Laffley, the CEO. So just a massive position, headed up basically all of sales for Procter and Campbell products. And, you know, he was a, he's still a mentor of mine. And Joe and I down in Antarctica or maybe somewhere along the Drake Passage between South America and Antarctica, we're talking about, you know, our upbringings. And I remember saying to him that my parents said, when you're smart, you become a doctor. And he said, his parents said to him, when you're smart, you can do anything you want. And he goes, I'm not saying that's better. And I go, I cut him off. I said, no, that's way better. That is a way better upbringing. I love my parents to pieces, but... It is much more in line with Uncle Joe, rumman's Uncle Joe, which is, dude, just work hard and be honest with yourself. If you have the talent to do it, but man,
2: if you're smart, you could do anything you want. You don't have to be but, a doctor. But I'm, I'm going to throw some math out at you to like factor this. So uh, this guy Joe, his, your your Joe, your buddy Joe, his dad was in sales, but your dad was in sales for packaged goods as well. Sure. And so I was originally going to be like, oh well, of course the dad's in sales. He makes a commission, you know, just. You can crush it if you just do your job really well um, versus maybe the engineering or the doctor dad who's like, just study. And But your dad was also a pretty good sales guy from what I understand. Sure. And the only difference then is one is an immigrant and one is not. That's so the level of specificity. The le- well, yeah, there are many differences, I know. Sure, <laughs> but like, sure. um, but the level of specificity of, and I can only speak to my parents. I asked have, have my dad. My dad's an architect or he's a retiring professor of architecture. And he studied architecture in India, and I wanted to be an artist, and dad said, you can't be an artist. i was like, why not? You became an architect. Why'd you become an architect? We had this argument, as I was in high school, out college, he's like, I became an architect because I didn't get into med school, Roman. And I'm like, Mm. what? And that just shook my world, because at 18 years old, seeing my dad at his drafting table, you know, getting him to draw me Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, encouraging me to take art classes after school, literally putting his old architect's table in my room, you know? And... To hear him say that, it was just so matter of fact. I was like, so this is all a calculation? And Mm -hmm. I I only buy half of that. Like, I do think there is, you know, he got into architecture school and did it well because in India, architecture was prestigious as well. But you come to America and it's not as prestigious as doctor or lawyer, right? Right. So, yeah, I'm not scarred. I'm I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, we're all good. (laughs) We're all good. We're all broken people.
1: We are. (laughs) We are. So, Rajiv, speaking of becoming a broken person or- you know, turning out that way. How are you different today than you were as a kid growing up?
0: So I would say I probably had a few inflection points. Uh, you know, probably around the age of thirteen is where I became a leader. I remember this in seventh grade because the supposedly smartest kids in my class, who who are and who were and are still smarter than I am, they're not kids anymore. They had more traditional intelligence and and raw brain power. I always say that knowledge is the size of your hard drive and intelligence is the speed of your processor. Their processors are probably a little bit, or or they're not, their hard drives are are quite a bit bigger. Processor-wise, I don't know. I think they picked up certain concepts faster than I did, but I realized that there's was something specific that happened where we had a we had to we had to argue. It was it was debate in in class. We had to argue against the cool kids uh, about whether we should cut the deficit by ten percent. And that we were given the position that we should cut the deficit by ten percent. And then the the other kids uh, showed up and their whole argument. And I actually thought that they might do this, but I didn't say anything to the other kids in my group because they're the smart ones, right? Like they got it. I mean, Danny, Chris, they they've got this. So what what am I going to add? I'm not I'm not smart enough to, to compete with these guys. And then when uh, John and Matt and Gabe and some of the guys who are my friends now, the cool kids, were like, we're going to cut the deficit by 20%. Well, that just threw our entire argument completely off. We lost in a huge bloodbath. And I thought about that. I, I should have said something. It's like, ah, oh, man, like if I would have just taken control of the group or at least said something. So from there on out, I go, I'm a leader. I can do this. I'm a leader amongst leaders. I don't care how smart somebody is. I think I can see angles that other people can't. And that happened when I was 13. Mm-hmm. When I was 16, I developed a pretty big ego. I think I got all A's <laughs> for a year. I got chosen to represent our class of 500 at the Hugh O'Brien Youth Leadership uh, thing. I won cl- the class presidency. Uh, I got, developed a pretty big like, wow, I'm pretty sweet. And that, the Roman's like, yeah, that's pretty much, that's never gone away. And uh, I'd say at 18, I went to college at Case Western and This is not the only thing I got out of case, but I would say up until up until eighteen, I was probably a pretty good person. Like I don't think I really did anything that was really that wrong, or I I was a pretty like up and up. Didn't didn't see. There
2: are no skeletons. There's no like Save by the Bell parties. Nothing.
0: There are, but I would say they were made me a bad, like, I was pretty happy with how I was. I'm mean, going to egg the neighbor's house. But I mean, other than that, I, <laughs> I would say just, repeatedly you for know, years. Just
1: that, yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> <laughs> like repeat offender. But, you know, at this, I think the statute of limitations is, is long gone on that one. Luckily, thank God, they, they, are, they are great people, our neighbors. They're still my parents' neighbors so, who never pressed charges. And so amazing human beings. And so at that point, though, at eighteen, I met a lot of different people, and I kind of developed, started developing racial prejudices. I developed a, a few biases that I don't think I had before. I started seeing myself as more Indian, and I didn't like myself as much. I, I still appre- I really still admire young Rajiv a lot more than I like adult Rajiv.
2: Really, hmm. what don't you like about adult Rajiv? I um, mean, I have a long list. Yeah, of- <laughs> I
0: was going to say, how long do you have? <laughs> So Robin take it from here. So, um, I think I'm still a pretty moral person, but I don't think I'm as good as I was as a kid. I think that I don't like seeing the world through uh, tinted glasses. I liked it when I thought it was a meritocracy and, you know, all those kind of things, which it's not. But I don't know. I guess my eyes were opened and
1: that's crappy. It sucks taking a so red pill. Does that at all relate to how you became a comedian? Like, cause you, you were a marketing guy, right? And, yeah. and then you totally kind of diverted. So how t- talk to us about that.
0: I, was not miserable in corporate America. I, I jokingly refer to, refer to myself as a recovering corporate American, but that's a <laughs> lot more cynical than... Uh, reminisces. I mean, I perform at a lot of corporate gigs and all that sort yeah. of stuff. There's, there's always this tension I have between, and I think a lot of people in creative fields have this tension between being an artist and an entertainer. And an artist, you do it for yourself. An entertainer, you do it for them. Mm-hmm. And there's got to be a balance. Everybody's a balance, unless you're Lou Reed, you're probably <laughs> going to be pretty. There's going to be some kind of balance. You're probably not entirely pure. And what I think I felt was, wow, the people around me here in brand at PNG, and before that in purchasing at PNG and product supply, all the stuff—they're smart. I like them. I enjoy this job. I absolutely do not hate it. And Raman knew me when he knew me at this time. But the issue was, I felt like any smart person in my shoes could do. The same job, they 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 would do it just as well, just as poorly. However, I was doing it, and you're still a cog in a wheel. Like it's yeah. not you can put your own spin on that cog a little bit, but kind of not really. And so it's great. It's a great existence. It's fun. I enjoyed it, but it bothered me that I had a lot more to say, and that anyone else, not any Joe off the street, but any person that I knew and socialized with, could pretty much do my job. And I went well. <laughs>
1: then why am I doing it? Then I should go do
0: something and else and someone else can do this job.
1: Got it. And then did you know that you wanted to be an entertainer? Like, how did that actually happen?
0: I really did not know. I think it also was with Joe and my friend, who's our valedictorian. We sat down at a Perkins restaurant in Fairfield, Ohio, this chain restaurant. I do.
1: I do. I went to school in Buffalo for two years and, that was the first time I had ever encountered a Perkins. But yes, I do know Perkins.
0: Perkins, where I met Andre Agassi at the one down in Florida, outside wow. of uh, Orlando, Florida, That which also changed my life in a in a weird way if we have time to talk <laughs> about that. But I we sat down over coffee and talked for a very long time. I think I was 18 or 19. I, I had to be because I knew Joe and I didn't meet him until college. And I still knew Mark and I knew him in high school. So probably around 18, 19. And we talked about how I could become famous. That's what I wanted. I was like, huh. I want to be famous. And how in the world would I accomplish that? And it seems, even then it seemed really shallow and hollow. And now it's just, oh my gosh, that's so cringeworthy to say that was your goal. But it's like, yeah, you were 18. Come on. And that's okay. And I don't like looking back at my younger self and going, well, I was an idiot. I'm a moron. It's like, no, you weren't an idiot or a moron. You were just young. Mm -hmm. And similarly, like when you turn... 40 or 30 or whatever, I think one of the worst things you could say to yourself is, well, when I was 18, I thought by the time I was 30, I'd have this. And I go, why would 18-year-old Sharon know more about 29-year-old Sharon than 29-year-old Sharon? Right. 18-year-old Sharon doesn't know what turning 30 is like.
1: That's crazy.
0: Like, that's an insane metric to use, I think. Yeah. And eventually, I did stand up years later. It took me a while to figure out what I could do. And I was 22 the first time I got on stage and I have the folder right behind me still in my filing cabinet and the filing folder amidst all my other files of science and engineering and math. It is literally scrawled on there. My trip to fame. Wow. Still have it.
1: Wow. That's amazing.
0: Yeah. That's that. I think also my friend, Laura Bianchi in fifth grade wrote me a letter and I still have it. And she wrote me a letter saying, you should not be a doctor. You should go into entertainment. And I kept that letter. I still have it. I mean, we were, you know, 11.
1: Yeah. I feel like those are all like the breadcrumbs, you know, like, Mm -hmm. or building blocks or however you want to see it. But like, those are all the little, the little signs along the way that kind of helps you to know that you're on the right path.
0: That's so, so well said. What a great way of saying it.
1: Thanks. Thanks. So a lot of people that we have on the show, we typically, they all, a lot of them have like day jobs and office jobs and other things. And we talk a lot about um, whether or not they feel as if they have to adapt or assimilate into their day-to-day work culture. Do you ever feel that way as an entertainer? Have you ever had to, I don't know, pretend to be someone that you're not or to behave differently? Because of your cultural background in your current profession?
0: So let me make sure I understand the question. So because I'm Indian, do I feel like that affects how I behave amongst other comics maybe or amongst other entertainers? Yeah. I think in... LA, especially in this day and age, probably not, right? I think the the drumbeat of diversity has been such a thing for so long that there's still majority white male and and black male dominated stand-up, you know, cisgendered straight, all of that stuff. But I think that for me. I don't think I feel any more or less comfortable in a room full of Indian comedians than I do amongst all white comedians. I mean, probably the best for me is is a diverse room. But I tell this to my wife too. We live in a mostly white neighborhood. Our street is is pretty diverse, but the neighborhood at writ large is is quite white and quite old. Burbank is that way, and I said to her while we were house shopping, I go, I can only live in an all white neighborhood or a mixed neighborhood. That's it. Because I grew up in an all white neighborhood. That's what I know. And of course, I'm comfortable around diversity, but it'd be very hard for me to live in a a completely dominated by anything, even Indian. I Mm -hmm. would not feel comfortable living in an all Indian neighborhood, all Asian, all black, all Latino, whatever. I just wouldn't. It would be very weird for me. I mean, I guess I would do it, but That would be odd. So similarly, I I think when it's an all Indian audience with all Indian comedians, I don't think that's my ideal space. I enjoy it, but my ideal space is a much more diverse crowd, age, gender, race, and then having the comedians also reflect that diversity. To me, that's that's super cool.
2: I think um, something I actually realized in the formation of our friendship early on is I didn't I did have a handful of Indian friends, but my friend group wasn't defined by only Indian people and what I learned when I moved to a new city started meeting new people that I didn't grow up with go to high school with the Indian people and frankly the Asian people or the minority people that I was drawn to including my wife now wife including my friend Sharon um, to a degree who I met around the same time I would have met you Rajiv um, Mm -hmm. is they were people who weren't fully immersed like they didn't only hang out with the Chinese crowd and to be fair, I knew a handful of Indian people that only hung out with Indian people. They went to, you know, their entire college group, their entire high school group was all whatever they were, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it was the being kind of an other, you know, the the assimilating, trying to fit in. Sometimes, like, in my own identity, I viewed myself as a white kid, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And I think those were the people I gravitated towards if they happened to be a minority, not the I only hang out with all the Chinese kids. I only hang out with all the Indian kids, et cetera. Um, I don't know. Would Sharon, Rajiv, would did either of you guys have that experience when you started to make friends beyond high school?
1: I did and I didn't. Like I think I've talked about this before. I grew up around a lot of Asians. So I always kind of thought that I was assimilating with my group of peers even though looking back, I think most of my peers were were Asian American and so yes, we were all like same colored skin, same colored hair but very American, not mainstream white American, but kind of our own version of whatever that meant. And so it was almost like this mini culture amongst the culture. Um, yeah, College, I think was similar to that because I went to a pretty diverse college, um, two different ones, one upstate and then one in New York city. So not too much difference. It really wasn't until I got into the corporate world that that disparity was so much greater because in my field and my industry anyway, not a lot of Asian Americans and certainly not a lot of Asian females. That's when it really stood out to me that like, oh, I'm totally a minority and I'm definitely different from everybody else.
2: What about you, Rajiv? When did you start hanging out with like a lot of Indian people or did you always just hang out with a lot of Indian people?
0: College. It was, uh, that was when I turned 18, went to Case Western Reserve University, Uh, in Cleveland, Ohio. And that was a Big, big change for me. I was suddenly surrounded by Indians. I never actually felt comfortable around Indians. I'm very different from Sharon in that way because and maybe Raman a little bit more similar to you, because I did not, and I'm sure you'll comment on that, but I did not grow up around mostly Indians. I really could not stand doing the holy programs and Diwali programs. And for those of you who don't know, I'm sure most people know what Diwali is now. It's kind of the Indian Christmas and Holy is the It's Indian. our Christmas. Yeah. And if you've seen the office, uh, the U.S. office, of course, you probably know what the valley is. But at, at that time, my parents said, well, you have to do something cultural, you know, and so you have to do the dances or the songs. I'm like, well, I can't sing. And I really did not like to dance at that point. So I really resented. it. I could not wait to get back to my white friends and Mark and John and Gabe and these people. And they said, well, you have to do something. And so I said, All right, I'll MC. And so then people go, well, then that's when you started doing stand-up. When you were 13 and you were standing in front of a thousand people doing original material, you were doing stand-up. And it took me a long time. People had to point that out to me. I didn't realize that. And, you know, I kind of went, Wow, I'll do that job because no one really I guess, could do it. I I just thought no one wanted it. But they're like, you're going to stand in front of a thousand people in front of all these uncles and aunties and kids and whatever. I said, yeah, I'll do it. And so that was my way of getting involved. But it wasn't until I went to college and it really kind of threw me off that I was hanging around a bunch of Indians and I, I liked it. I'm still friends with a lot of those folks. But I also had a pretty diverse uh, friend set. And in Cincinnati, most of my friends are white. In New York, most of my friends are Indian. And in LA, it's it's actually a pretty diverse mix.
2: Well, so something I've noticed, um, you know, we've maintained a friendship over the years, but professionally, we're not in the same circles, right? Sure. And, you know, you now as an entertainer, don't do just business in the US, you do a lot of international business. And you, you know, you've blown up in India to a degree. But even before, like, it might have been before or just before, or just after you started to blow up in India as the American comic who happens to have Indian parents, right? Um, you Hillary Clinton sent you to India with some comics. And True. Like, and like you were in the Benghazi hearings. Like, talk to me. That's like a fun story that's worth saying, but like talk to me about like that journey of discovering your appeal among the motherland, which is kind of not your motherland.
0: Yeah, that's a great question and it was super fun. I mean, Jerry Seinfeld talked about how stand-up comedy is a journey into oneself and I would agree with that. And if I may modify Seinfeld, which may not be allowed since he's comedy royalty, but it's a public journey into oneself. And I think Ruman has been one of my biggest I I say fans not condescendingly, but I just I from a position of being touched myself going, wow, it's really cool that he's, you know, stayed with me and he brought people to my show and he he promotes my stuff. And now I'm on on your guys's podcast. So I really feel like people like Raman have seen the act develop over time. And it really has been a journey into myself. But one of the one of the big aspects of that, one of the big threads of my personality, big strands is being Indian. It's not the only thing that defines me, but I really start talking more and more about what that's like. And it's interesting when you perform in India as an Indian American, you've got something actually kind of working against you because Americans are aspirational, whether whoever's president, wherever we may be, where how many of our cases of coronavirus we may have, America as an idea, this shining city on the hill. We could debate whether that's earned or unearned or right or wrong. And I don't want to get into the politics of it right in this particular answer, but I will say that that's the perception, is that people look up to Americans wherever we go and down on us in certain ways too. But there is that aspect when you're speaking from the stage of you really, really, really have to check your condescension. That's a big thing. That's one. And then two, it also has to do with the fact that you kind of got out of India, even though I don't look at it that way. That's the perception. And so when it's a white person on stage or a black person you know, talking about how crazy things are in India, they have alien eyes and they're so different that it's okay. Whereas an in Indian in India homegrown there doing local material about how crazy it is in India, they get away with it because they're from there. they have license to do it. when you're an Indian American talk about going talking about going to India, it took me a while to find the my sea legs. that's not hmm. an easy transition to make, and so when the state Department sent Three comedians to India, which sounds like a joke, back in 2012. <laughs> we toured India. And they started, and they brought us back, which we appreciate. Obama sent us, or Hillary Clinton and Obama sent us. Uh, Trump might have just left us there. Well,
1: but, 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 like tell them what,
2: <laughs> why
0: does <laughs> the State Stone? Department do stuff like that? What is that yeah. part of?
1: Is that cult, cross-cultural relationships?
0: Yes, it okay. is actually very coin of the realm or part and parcel, whatever the phrase is, for the U.S. Department of State to send entertainers over to countries while we bomb their neighbors. So if you look at jazz musicians or stand-up comedians <laughs> or
1: anyone terrible. else. That's terrible. Yeah. That's terrible. That's terrible. Screw you
2: guys. That's, That's hilarious. Come
1: on. <laughs> this can't be true.
2: <laughs> it's, it's terrible because
0: it's true. And it's funny because it's terrible and true. So there you go funny because it's terrible
2: there you have it so, i think we have the poll quote for the episode no but um, i know mike, mike go ahead rajiv you finish because i just i have to say like the npr ran Paul quote at the end of it because it's amazing
0: oh no, <laughs> for sure no for sure i'll, I'll let you do that It'd be great so yeah that's a very common thing for the u.s department of state to send over entertainers to get people endeared to american culture to understand americans a little bit more and so stand-up comedy is one of those things and
2: what
1: was
0: yeah, the name of your tour it was called Make Chai Not War.
1: Oh, my God. Okay, okay, okay. But however, <laughs> this is so weird. So Yeah, it is. They're sending Indian Americans over to India so that they can better have people in India to understand our culture.
2: Well, so Obama, and I don't, I don't want to say he's the only um, president to talk like this to India specifically, but certain sides of the wings of American politics. Have kind of made the overtures to India to say so much of your diaspora is in our country, in America. Mm -hmm. Um, Because it is literally the Indian people. Like you go to America first, Canada second, Britain, Australia next, right? Right. Like America. That's who you can make it. Because like Indian people in England, where I have a lot of my mom's family, it's more like more middle class or lower middle class, not Mm -hmm. upper middle. It's not the doctors and the engineers in England, right? And there are a lot to be clear, but um, you go to America. And so that con- connectivity, that kind of connective tissue is like, we are of the same, but look how well your children are are thriving in our country. Right. Um, and that helps with trade relations, et cetera, et cetera. Is that fair, Rajiv?
0: It does. It is true. And it, I think it is connecting those cultures. And Sharon, you make a really interesting, that is a really funny observation. It's like we're sending Indians back to India so Indians can learn about Indian culture abroad. <laughs> it's yeah, sort of, kind yeah. of an interesting. <laughs> it's like this weird, you know, ironic
1: kind of thing. Yeah, exactly.
0: Boomerang, ironic <laughs> effect type of thing going on. Totally. But I think it's because, I mean, I think they also could have sunk, you know, a white guy or a black guy or whatever else too, or, you know, um, but I think it's because we do understand we can bridge those two worlds, like Robin Definitely. Would
1: say. Yeah. And I, and I do think that you're, you're obviously more approachable to that audience Mm -hmm. because you, you are like them. Um, but it's just, it's just so ironic that that's like an intentional decision at the state department level. Like I just,
2: well, so, so the other, the other wing of American politics was not a fan of it. And so during the Benghazi hearings where, you know, they were effectively grilling Hillary, they were going line by line through what the state department was spending money on. And I feel it's an NPR clip, I think, but like Rand Paul, literally reads he's like and you guys spent money on something called make chi not war <laughs> <laughs> so good yes so good yes
0: he went to china <laughs> instead of india i mean there is tea in china as well so that would actually work i guess
1: <laughs> so funny oh rajiv Crazy. i wish we had like so much more time um
0: okay so we've series. talked we've
1: we've talked about all the basic things can we talk about romance a little bit you mentioned your wife. Sure. Especially.
0: Let's talk about romance, rummin' and romance. Yeah. Oh, How God did him. you guys
1: meet mm. and where, you know, what did that all look like? What's your relationship like? Is she also, I also, I always ask you five questions at once. Um, is she also <laughs> of Indian descent? Tell us about her.
0: <laughs> Great. So my wife, Hersha is somebody who was born in Toronto. She mm-hmm. grew up in Texas in a small town. And when I say a town, She is Gujarati, so she's Indian. And, you know, a town is very different from a city or the burbs or a farm. And I always point this out to her. I go, there are two things that are interesting about your upbringing. One, only two. Okay. Two things. One is that you grew up in a town. Like, we go to where her parents ran a motel, of course, being Gujarati. That is a very typical, stereotypical, but typical thing. And... They would walk to the town square and meet the judge, Judge Unetka, who married us, uh, Unetka, who married us in in that same town square officially where we got our certificate. And They would go get baked buns and they sold out by 2 p.m. And I go, this is a town. This isn't the burbs. That's not how Fairfield is. I say I grew up in a small town. It was still 50,000 people. I had 500 people in my graduating class. That's any town USA. That's just middle America for you. It's not a farm where she grew up and it's not the city. It's a town. That's one thing that's different, I believe. Two is she grew up on the central time zone. And people are like, what what does that matter? It matters because (laughs) shows came on at 8, 7 central, 10, 9 central. So Hersha grew up watching Dynasty in Dallas at 9 p.m. when I had to be in bed by 10. So she matured a lot faster. So everybody who grew up in the central time zone specifically, not the Eastern, not the mountain, not the Pacific, the central time zone, Are more mature than the rest of
2: us. (laughs) I agree. I fully agree. Although now that I live in Eastern Time Zone, I think the people in Central are just
1: bumpkins, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, country bumpkins. Yes. How do you think about
2: who you are today and what you want to tell like your past self? Like if you could, if you could send, you know, ten year old Rajiv emceeing at the holy event, one thing, what would you tell him?
0: Well, what I would say to younger Rajiv, and 10-year-old Rajiv was not MCing yet, but 13-year-old Rajiv was. So I'd say to whether I was 6 or 10 or 13, those different inflection points that we've covered, boy… I've gotten this question before and I'm always careful because I guess I grew up watching Back to the Future and I don't want to mess
1: with he the space time continuum. <laughs> exactly,
0: exactly right. Uh, right. I, I, would be, I would say be Doc Brown, be a Brown doctor. I would, I would say, Um. I would love to have given the advice that Joe's parents gave to him, which was when you're smart, you can do anything. Like you go into what really does make you happy and... I think that is a fairly generic thing, but it's generic for a reason. It's cliched for a reason because... I think we would all give our younger selves just a little bit more confidence. And I heard somebody say that to me about five, six years ago. She said, "Wow, you know, in high school, you always seemed like somebody who knew where you were. You knew who you were, and you knew where you were going." And I was like, "Wow, that is. I'm glad it looked like that, but that's not true. I mean, I think I kind of knew who I was. Yeah, I spent a lot of time with you know self analysis, and but the only problem with that, I think, is they say the more introspection you do, the more lost you get. So at a certain point, you have to stick a pin in it somewhere. And there's a big difference. You could be self-aware and still be very self-absorbed, which I think I am. So I, I I think I would probably, yeah, I would just say go into what it is you want to do because even though I'm glad I have a degree in engineering and worked in marketing and interned on Capitol Hill and I have all these experiences, I think I would have been better served just turning 18 and just coming to
2: Hollywood. Wow, they're all going to make it.
0: Yeah, we're all
2: going to make it. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, Rajiv. <laughs> yeah. David Cross. So good. Um, if uh, I don't know, yeah, we got a few more minutes. Are you ready for the speed round?
0: We can do the speed round. But Sharon, I hope I answered your question about my wife. I don't know if I gave you enough.
2: <laughs> <laughs> good save. Good husband.
0: Yeah, I know.
1: You did. That was a satisfactory answer.
0: It was good. I'm glad it was satisfactory. That's good. Was- so. OK,
2: good, good, good.
1: Okay. Oh, let's do the speed round. Speed round.
2: First of all, book, movies, or TV? What's your like jam if you had to go to only one?
0: If I only could do one, it'd be movies.
2: Okay. Um, well, you might answer this one quickly then. So, and of all the movies uh, that you can quote and everything out there, um, what's one that has characters that you can just completely relate to? A
0: movie that has, I think, ordinary people. The best picture from 1980. I really feel like the daddy and the son.
2: I feel like you're a walking spreadsheet. You—that's like a column in your spreadsheet.
0: That's food. so funny. I know. I got through that much quicker yeah, versus was, something
2: surprising. I'm
0: really fast. It takes yeah. me ten <laughs> seconds to say. <laughs> that
1: which was really. That was that was pretty good. Let's see how quickly you do answer. this one. What's okay. your favorite mom dish?
0: My mom's rajma chawal, which is rice and red beans. Nice. Mm. Good pandemic food.
1: Yeah. Pandemic food. Yeah.
2: W- what is your least favorite food? From my mom or just generally? <laughs> no, just general. In general. <laughs> I don't want to get you yeah, disowned. Don't get, you, you
1: don't, get, don't, don't get in trouble with your mom.
0: Well, I'll get in trouble with the largest group of people on the planet. I just now in the last year started liking Chinese food. I could not stand it up until maybe about a year ago. And now I like it.
2: Good thing you put that at the end of the show.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I know. Couldn't stand it. I liked all other Asian food. <laughs> (laughs) shop sushi is my favorite food i liked korean food vietnamese i just couldn't get into chinese i don't know why but now i like it
1: good good i would have to let me take this one and all you get
2: the very last one all right cool um okay so rajiv you've interviewed a lot of people already Mm. Uh, you have a video series you've been podcasting longer than most people have and you've interviewed so many really cool people on stage but who's someone out there that you still want to interview on a podcast that you haven't gotten, that you, you don't have a line in, you're not talking to their people. Who do you want to sit down with for, for an hour have a deep conversation? Jack Nicholson, man, my favorite actor.
0: I mean, how there's no way to get to him. He's like the biggest person on the planet. He's a legend. He doesn't do interviews. It would just be totally, totally crazy. It's like a friend of mine who wanted to interview Woody Allen. He, But it, the difference is he really thinks he could get there. And I go, you can't. You're not going to. I'm not going to interview Jack. You're not going to interview Woody. It's not going to happen. Good luck. I think that some of the obvious answers are probably like Barack Obama. Uh, you no know, one on this like podcast that. has
2: never said that. No one on this podcast
1: has, ever, <laughs> has never said <laughs>
0: Barack Obama. Oh, wow. I think he'd be so great. I, I know that Bill Simmons and Mark Maron, uh, the podcasters, were having a little friendly contest to see who would get him first, and Bill Simmons got him. I nerd out. I like people like Jonathan and height and scott galloway to whom you turned me on Ruman. actually i think people they, they just did a podcast and i like nerding out to stuff like that but there are people like chris hedges and but i would say you know the comedians my mount rushmore and i'm going to run into a little bit of trouble here but that's okay my mount rushmore for comedy is chris rock dave chappelle bill bird louis ck any of those
1: that makes sense i can totally see that too i almost want to yeah. like yeah I, i'd almost want to be in the room with you as you interview those guys all at once. They're the
0: Venn diagram overlap of hilarious and actually say something. There are a yeah. lot of comedians who are really funny. There are a lot of comedians who try to say something. Those are the only four, in my opinion, who actually say something. You can take something home with you and make you laugh in the room.
1: Yeah. They're all really good. Okay. Ready? Last question. You ready for the last question?
0: I think I am. I thought I was ready for the first one. i blew. <laughs> no. So I think I got it. Okay. Let's go. I
1: think you got this. I think you got this. Okay. What does being a model minority mean for you?
0: I believe we are ambassadors, whether we like it or not. I think anytime you're a minority in anything, whether you're the only woman in the room, you're the only Indian in the room, you're the only comedian in the room, you are representing. And if you don't want that role, it's kind of too bad because perception is reality. And that's probably not a popular thing to say on a model minority podcast. But you know what? Hey, you get a lot of benefits from being in this country. There's some bad stuff, too. But you know what? When people ask you where you're from, guess what? I ask anyone with a European accent where they're from too, and they're white. So I don't think it's as racial as everybody thinks it is. I think people are curious. It all depends on tone. And we're representing, yo. We're part of that first, second generation that's saving and spending, and we're not ready to waste it yet.
2: So don't worry Rajiv, I'm going to butcher a quote purposefully for, uh, for the close of this. You may say a lot of funny things, Rajiv Satyal but you are not always a comedian. (laughs) I love it. I love it.
0: European, speaking of the European, the Romanian, right? I don't know. They all look the same.
2: Oh, Oh,
0: that's good. I was thinking about it the other day, like I said, you know, Scottish, Irish, whatever. And then I go, oh, wait, you would say Chinese, Japanese, whatever. Like, how is it okay to say Scottish, Irish, whatever? And we can dive into that at another time.
1: That's so great. Well, Rajiv, this was so much fun.
0: I hope so. Comedians tend to get a little serious sometimes. So I hope it was light enough for you. I had a blast myself. Thanks so much for having me on. All right. Well, thanks so much, Rajiv.
2: And that's our show.
1: Like what you heard? Please subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcasting platform. For more about this episode, links to things mentioned, or to join the conversation, visit monmypod.com. We'd love to hear from you.
2: Here's a preview of our next episode
1: walk into it. My first day at school was probably the most terrifying day ever for me because I didn't know anybody. I didn't speak the language and it, it wasn't supposed to happen that way. I didn't even get to say goodbye to my friends because I just kind of like I went on vacation and never came back.
2: That's it for now. I've been Raman Segel.
1: And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony.
2: Remember, we're all model minorities out there.
1: We'll talk to you soon.